Around midnight, Saturday, June 29th, 1974, rural Gray County, western Kansas. Gray County Sheriff Marvin Kramer, nicknamed Squirt, is out on patrol when he hears a call for the Ensign Kansas Volunteer Fire Department to respond to a fire at the farm of Richard and Clara Ann Anton. Sheriff Kramer rushes to the scene. By 12.40 a.m. Sunday morning, the Anton farmhouse is engulfed in flames. When the blaze is extinguished, the home is burned to the ground. In the ashes of the basement, two bodies are found, presumably Richard and Clara Ann. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Happy New Year, listeners. I hope you all had wonderful holidays, that you're recharged and ready to start the new crime year. I am still recovering. With six grandchildren, it was a very busy holiday. The grandchildren spent the night with us on New Year's Eve, so we woke up New Year's Day to a house littered with children and confetti and balloons and sparklers. I think we finally have things back to normal, and Cujo the dog has finally come out from under the bed. And I've gotten back to murder with an offbeat little case for the podcast. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Listeners, I know I said, let's talk about murder, and I will, I promise. The fire at the Anton Farmhouse is not a tragic accident. But before I do that, I'd like to talk about a side aspect to the case that I think is very interesting. It's more literary than criminal, but 
think it's fascinating. I hope you think so too. But if you don't, well, it's my podcast. So it will be a few minutes before I get back to strictly real life murder. Over the past few months, I've been researching the 1959 Clutter family murders. That case should sound familiar to most true crime fans. It was made famous by Truman Capote in his classic true crime work, In Cold Blood. Listeners, I will do the Clutter family murders sometime on the podcast, but I'm waiting on some information that I'd really like to have before I finish up the episode. In Cold Blood is clearly Truman Capote's masterpiece. When it comes out in 1966, he labels it a nonfiction novel. Right on the title page of the book, it says, A true crime account, no, I'm sorry, a true account of a multiple murder and its consequences. Now, most true crime authors are often primarily journalist, but Capote is a very successful and critically acclaimed author of short fiction. For example, the wonderful Audrey Hepburn movie Breakfast at Tiffany's is based on a Capote novella of the same name. Truman Capote becomes fascinated by the Clutter family murders and the murderers, and he spends years researching the crime and writing the book, spending a lot of time in Kansas while he does that. He becomes very close to Alvin Dewey, who's the principal investigator for the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, or the KBI on the Clutter Murders. When In Cold Blood is published in 1966, it's a huge bestseller and regarded as a literary masterpiece. Listeners, I still remember reading the book for the first time, and that was over 50 years ago. I was just a teenager, and I vividly remember the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. They're doing it right now, just thinking about it. What makes In Cold Blood stand out is that the story is true, but the book is structured like a novel with a great sense of atmosphere and character. I don't think it's an overstatement when critics call it brilliant. However talented, though, Truman Capote is a very troubled man. He's openly homosexual at a time when that's a very difficult thing. Even within the liberal cocoon of literary circles, he's an alcoholic and a drug abuser, and he isn't very honest. There are hints of this dishonesty early on. Capote famously says of In Cold Blood that, quote, every word is true, unquote. Well, that's not true, and Capote's called out on it. Al Dewey, for example, points out a couple of instances where conversations are mischaracterized or even, frankly, made up. Still, most people are willing to let Capote get away with some dramatic license. Unfortunately, Capote is never able to duplicate his in cold blood success, although he desperately tries. By the late 70s, It's getting hard for him to live off the success of In Cold Blood. 
Capote's publishers press him for the great new work he keeps promising them and that they are paying him for. He drops hints that he is working on a book that will be even better than In Cold Blood. Well, that's not really true either. He's working on a novel entitled Answered Prayers. Listeners, this book is never completed, although you can find Answered Prayers, the unfinished novel, out there. Capote's not one to downplay his literary talent. He even compares himself to Marcel Proust sometimes. And he has hopes that this new novel of his will remind people of remembrance of things past. Well, that's not going to happen. Okay, obligatory, not a literary expert, definitely not. But I just don't think Capote had the character or the self-discipline to pull that off. He was too self-absorbed and very self-indulgent. For years, Truman is the darling of the New York social set, counting many wealthy socialites as good friends like Jackie Kennedy's sister and Gloria Vanderbilt. They all love lunching and gossiping and partying with Capote. However, Truman Capote is not a loyal friend. Listeners, when one of the favorite activities with a friend is gossiping, it's probably wise to think about who the friend gossips about with other people. In the mid-70s, Truman Capote is under great pressure from his publishers, who have been waiting and waiting and paying for his next great book. He lets a few chapters be published in Esquire magazine. One of the chapters hits New York society like a bomb. It's a thinly veiled account of Ladies Who Lunch that skewers his so-called friends. Even though he changes names and places, some, everybody knows who he's writing about. His socialite friends are blindsided and more importantly, they're humiliated. There's even a part about a society murder that may have led to a suicide. So New York society drops Truman Capote like a hot rock. A few months before all this happens in the spring of 1975, in context about a year after the Anton murders, Capote appears on the Johnny Carson show. If you're not familiar with this show, it was an iconic, I would say the iconic, late night talk show on American TV. It was also called The Tonight Show. In my opinion, listeners, Johnny Carson was the best, by far, of any talk show host ever. As far as I'm concerned, no one else even compares. The famous scene from The Shining, where Jack Nicholson breaks open the door with the axe and yells, Here's Johnny! That's how Ed McMahon would introduce Johnny Carson at the beginning of The Tonight Show. This interview 
Carson does with Capote is long for a talk show, almost 15 minutes. And you can watch it on YouTube if you're curious. I recommend it if you want some insight into Johnny Carson and into Truman Capote and what a strange little man he was, albeit brilliant. Johnny knows Capote socially, and he has him on the show several times. In fact, Truman Capote dies at the Bel Air home of one of Carson's ex-wives in 1984. So Johnny's heard him talk about his work and his plans, and he asks him if he has anything like in cold blood in the works. Capote says, probably not. But there is a fascinating case of a series of murders that he is following. He describes it as a shocking case in a small town in a Midwestern state. Truman says the murders have been going on for about a year or a year and a half. The investigators know who the murderer is and why he's committing the murders, but they haven't been able to get enough evidence to arrest him. He keeps saying there's no news coverage about the case, but he knows about it because he is a good friend of one of the investigators. Of course, it's not a stretch that he's talking about Alvin Dewey, the in-cold-blood investigator which makes you think maybe the Midwestern state is Kansas. Although later on, Capote will get pinned down and tell somebody it's Nebraska. It's not. It's Kansas. But Capote is coy about all this and says he must wait until things resolve before he can do anything about that case. Legal matters, you know. Listeners, I wonder if what he says anyone took seriously. It, it's hard. What he goes on to talk about is things like the weapons in two of the murders are rattlesnakes. Yes, really, rattlesnakes. The murderer cuts the rattles off the snakes so there won't be that warning rattle. And injects them with amphetamines to make them more likely to strike. Then he puts a bunch of these snakes in the murder victims' cars. There are several more murders that he describes by different, really remarkable, maybe even kind of fantastic means. All this in a tiny rural community. How on earth would this not be in the newspapers? A few years later, in 1980, again under pressure from his publishers to just give them something, Capote releases a three-part book entitled Music for Chameleons. The second part of the book is called Hand-Carved Coffins, a non-fiction account of an American crime. Yes, that's right in the book. Listeners, I dare anyone to read this and believe it is nonfiction, but supposedly it's the real-life account 
of the murders Truman was telling Johnny Carson about. The gist of the story is there's a dispute over water with a powerful land baron. The dispute doesn't go his way, so he makes a list of a dozen people, a dozen, who are responsible and decides to murder all of them. He sends them little hand-carved boxes shaped like coffins. Then one by one, they start getting murdered. Two are victims of rattlesnakes. One dies riding a motorcycle, decapitated by a wire strung across the road. Another is poisoned and two die unable to escape from a burning farmhouse. That last part about two victims dying in a burning farmhouse has some similarity to the deaths of Richard and Clara Ann Anton in the fire. I talked about that at the top of the show. But what about the rattlesnakes and the decapitation, the poisoning? That's all pretty fantastic, and many people realize early on that hand-carved coffins is largely fiction. However, people do wonder if the story isn't based on a real-life case or cases. In fact, in 1992, an enterprising London Times reporter, Peter Gilman, decides to go to Kansas and see if he can figure out what the real-life case or cases might be. Running across his article is the inspiration for this podcast this week. He definitively shows that Truman Capote makes up most of hand-carved coffins, with the Anton case as his inspiration. He goes even further, and pretty convincingly, he makes the case that Capote stole the idea from his friend, KBI agent Alvin Dewey, who had sought his advice on how to write a book about the case. I put the link for all this in the show notes to Gilman's article and um, to another article about Gilman's article from the Washington Post. That article is a little critical of Gilman, not so much about his conclusions, more concerning the way he blows his own horn about being the first to discover what he calls this great literary hoax of Capote's. Anyway, it turns out, yes, Capote's inspiration is undoubtedly the Anton case, as I said, in hand-carved coffins, the killer is known to law enforcement, and his character, to me, seems more like Richard Anton than any of the victims. In real life, which is what I'm interested in, the Anton case is still one of the biggest cold cases in Kansas. So let's look into this tragic fire of June 1974, at the lonely farmhouse a few miles from the tiny town of Ensign, Kansas. The two bodies found in the rubble of the fire at the Anton Farm, that last name 
is A-N-T-O-N. I mostly pronounce it Anton, but it could be Anton. I'm not really sure. The bodies are indeed prominent farmer Richard Anton, 48 years old, and his wife of 30 years, Clara Ann Anton, 47 years old. From some of the stuff I've read about the case, I think maybe Clara Ann Anton likes to be called Anne, so I'll try to remember to do that. The fire is not a tragic accident. It's definitely arson. The fire is first noticed by a neighbor driving home on Highway 56 about midnight. There aren't any cell phones back then, so he probably raced home to call the fire department and then raced back to the Antons to see if there's anything he can do. The closest fire department is the Rural Fire Depa- Volunteer Fire Department in Ensign, Kansas, which isn't terribly far away, but it's not right next door either. Ensign is a tiny southwest Kansas town which has never had more than a couple hundred people living there. It's located in Gray County, Kansas. Today, even, only about 6,000 people in the whole county. The county seat is Cimarron, which boasts a population of about 2,000 people. It's located about three hours' drive due west of Wichita. So this is truly the middle of the middle of nowhere. The fire department is on the scene pretty quickly, about 12.40 a.m., but it's too late to do much except watch the fire burn itself out. Quote, it was gone before anyone got there, unquote, said Jack Lund, chief of the volunteer fire department. It's estimated that the fire was probably set between 10 and midnight. Autopsies show that both victims are shot, so the crime is murder. The pathologist reports that both victims had mortal gunshot wounds and were likely dead when the fire started. There are many accounts of the crime and the investigation. In spite of what Truman Capote says, there is a lot of news coverage of the case, but not a lot of detail about the exact circumstances of the actual shooting and the fire. So I can't tell you a lot of things that armchair detectives like to know about a crime. Like, for starters, what kind of gun was used? A shotgun, a rifle. Sorry, listeners, I can't tell you. One investigator says that the fire destroyed everything of evidentiary value. The county attorney says they aren't even sure where exactly the Antons were shot. Anne and Richard are found on their backs in the basement of the house, which is burned to the ground, and everything in the basement is ashes too. A little background on the Antons. They live in a small farmhouse on the family property, with five kids. Can you imagine the teenage years with one girl and four boys? I shudder to think. They've lived there since 1962. Over the years, they've made some improvements. 
For example, there's a nice in-ground swimming pool and some nice outbuildings for the cars and farm equipment. According to accounts in the papers, for most of the years, the boys' bedrooms are in the basement. By 1974, only the youngest child, a boy, is at home, and he's 20. So my guess is the basement is almost like a little apartment slash family room by the time of the murders. That year, the Antons have started doing some major remodeling, really expanding the house, putting in a brand new kitchen, and some other things. While this is going on, the couple lives in the basement of the house. That's where their bodies are found. My first thought was that they're shot in the basement, possibly while they're asleep. The fire isn't set until late that night. However, years later, the sheriff says Richard and Anne are found on their backs, but not in bed. So there must be other possibilities. And don't worry, I will speculate about all this later. The investigators are quick to put down rumors of a murder-suicide. Richard has two bullet wounds in his chest and Anne one shot in her chest. Hearing about that and thinking the terrible thoughts that I think sometimes, I must confess that I can see a wife shooting her husband twice even, then setting the fire and shooting herself. That is possible. But if it's the case, there should be a gun right there. And surely if the murder weapon was found near the bodies, the newspapers would report that. Although I guess I can really stretch my mind and say the wife shot her husband, ran away, buried the gun somewhere, ran back. Oh no, wait, then she can't shoot herself. So yeah, I think murder-suicide is probably out of the question. Another reason murder-suicide is ruled out early on is that the Antons, particularly Richard, have recently been the target of some disturbing and potentially fatal attacks. One of the attacks involves a rattlesnake with its rattle cut off that he finds in his car. As I said, Richard and Anne are the parents of five grown children, four sons and a daughter, all in their 20s. They both grew up in the area. Richard is an ambitious man, and in the 1950s, he moves the family to the Kansas City area. They live at 5310 Juniper Drive in Roland Park. If you know the area, that's a nice suburb of Kansas City. Roland Park is in Johnson County, Kansas. We've talked about affluent Johnson County before. Nowadays, it's a wealthy suburban area southwest of downtown Kansas City, Missouri. In the 50s, Roland Park is a growing middle-class suburb, which would appeal to the Antons' growing family. The modest house on Juniper Drive is still there, 
and the neighborhood still looks pretty nice. Anyway, it's ideal for the growing Anton family. There is a lot more opportunity for Richard Anton in Kansas City than on the farm. He starts a business there and makes a great success of things. His company supplies what a friend calls coin-operated elevator music for hotel and motel rooms. Listeners, I don't ever remember seeing anything like this. I do remember little mini jukeboxes at the table in diners and drive-ins, but I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in a hotel room. I don't know, maybe that was a thing in the 50s. He also operated a couple of thriving root beer stands and had a Lionel model train dealership. We've talked before about how wide open a town Kansas City was for decades. The Kansas City Mafia and government corruption flourish in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and some would say still do. The popular music business often has organized crime connections, so there are rumors that the Anton murders might be a result of Richard's dealings in Kansas City. But law enforcement dismisses this idea early on, rightly so, I think. Richard goes back to Gray County to take over the family farm in 1962. It's really a stretch to think the Mafia waited 12 years to get revenge for something. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, to indicate that Richard was mobbed up in any way. In 1974, the Antons are a well-regarded family within the Ensign community, pillars of the community. Nice kids. Richard's been on the local school board and plays the organ at the Methodist Church in Ensign. Their only daughter is married and lives in nearby Montezuma, Kansas. The oldest son works in the medical field in Wichita. Two other sons live nearby and help Richard run the farm. The youngest son, John, 20, is still living at home that summer, but he has a job and a steady girlfriend and is expected to be out on his own soon. Fortunately, the night of the fire, he is visiting his girlfriend in liberal Kansas, about an hour and 15 minutes drive away from the farmhouse. Richard is known as a very prosperous and shrewd and, some might even say, hard businessman and farmer, but very successful. In the 12 years since he's been back in western Kansas, he's accumulated over 4,000 acres of farmland and a lot of cattle. He's aggressive about expanding his holdings, and he sometimes buys farmhouse, farmhouses and farmland with long-term renters already living on the property and farming the property. Sometimes these people may have even been on the land for one or two generations. So when Richard buys the property, these people are forced out. So he makes enemies. This is made painfully clear early in 1974. According to reporter Dennis Anderson of the Garden City Telegram, 
writing, or he's saying this happened. He's, he's writing about a year after the murders, but he's saying this took place just a few months before the murders. Richard Anton spoke with Gray County Attorney J. Don Reynolds. Now, county attorney is what county prosecutors are called in Kansas. They're elected to the position. Quoting from the article, I think someone may be out to get me, Anton said, and tells Reynolds about a series of disturbing incidents that occurred starting in February 1974. The incidents included a fire on February 1st, 1974, which burned his garage, luxury sedan, a tractor, and a model train collection worth $30,000. Ant's discovery on March 1974 that someone had removed all but one lug nut from his front pickup truck's wheels. Two combines disabled with a hole in the number two piston of each and a tractor which threw a rod and broke the block. Listeners, there's another good article a couple of years after the murders in the New York Daily News of all places. It's from February 1st, 1976, by reporter Kermit Jadiker. I don't know if I said that right. It's J-A-E-D-I-K-E-R. There's several things mentioned in this article that I couldn't find anywhere else. I tend to believe what's in here is fairly accurate even though it is a little different from what I could find in Kansas newspapers. My impression is that the author is out in Kansas talking with local people, including law enforcement, but I'm sure that the local papers are also doing that, and they don't mention some of these things. At any rate, I'll go with my best guess on some of this. One incident that is only in this article, at least as far as I could find, is that the Anton's dog is poisoned during this time. He survives. Don't worry. His name is Bigfoot. And my best guess is that he is a German shepherd or maybe a mix with a shepherd. He's found after the fire in a field. There's one other sensational incident related by Richard. Yes, rattlesnakes. Here's what it says in the Garden City article. On April 6, 1974, as Anton was driving home from Dodge City, he looked in the rearview mirror and saw a rattlesnake sunning itself on the rear inside ledge of his car between the back seat and the rear window. It was not an ordinary rattlesnake. The rattles had been cut off. Anton drove into a ditch, flagged down a passing car, and rode into Cimarron looking for Sheriff Kramer. It was still dripping, Kramer said, in reference to the snake's rattlers having been freshly cut. Ugh. 
can you imagine being in that situation? It's, it's terrifying. This is truly something malevolent. Somebody hates Richard and his family. Taking off the lug nuts, Richard's known to be a fast driver. If he'd been up to speed before he noticed that the wheels were acting funny, that could have killed him or whoever was driving the pickup or whoever was riding with him or even maybe somebody else on the road. It's just as likely that Anne would have been driving the family car with the rattlesnake in it. Sheriff Kramer is very concerned about all this, rightfully so. He even offers to stake out the Anton farm, but Richard declines the offer. In hindsight, that might be too bad. Anyway, listeners, to my mind, when the murders take place, law enforcement is seriously considering whoever's behind all these incidents may have become a murderer. The investigators pursue other theories, too. It appears to be a very thorough investigation. As I've said, there aren't a lot of details about the circumstances of the murder or the investigation in the press, but it definitely looks like it was a good professional investigation. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation is called in. The agent in charge is the aforementioned Alvin Dewey, who brought the murders of the Clutter family to justice and befriended Truman Capote. He spends a couple of years on the case. It's a big, wide-ranging investigation with a task force, hundred of leads, um, a big reward, dozens of people who might even have a flimsy motive are investigated. Locals, even the children, are investigated. However, as I said, it's still a cold case to this day. In 1975, Sheriff Kramer states that he thinks the murders are a burglary gone wrong. Quote, I still think it was someone who was going through and who tried to steal something and got caught. They saw the house and thought it was empty. They got to scrounging around and got caught. Anton caught them and they shot him. But that's just a theory. It never leaves my mind. You drive around and look at the neighborhood and you say, could it be? Unquote. The sheriff does have one prime suspect in the fires and sabotage and rattlesnake incidents, though... He's had his eye on one Chester Hilton Wade for a while. Wade is one of the renters who is displaced when Richard acquires a piece of farm property. And he's been shooting off his mouth all over town about how bitter he is about this. When the sheriff asks Richard to make a list of his enemies, Wade tops the list. He still lives in the area. He was able to find another place to rent where he lives with his wife, Barbara. As you can imagine, he's not a particularly well-regarded person in the community, but he doesn't have a long criminal record of violence or anything. 
My sense is that he's a local good-for-nothing, probably lazy and dishonest, but not necessarily someone you'd be terribly afraid of if he confronted you. On top, uh, on the night of the murders, his alibi is that he is home asleep with his wife, and she backs that up. However, in 1981, seven years after the murder, Chester Hilton Wade is back on law enforcement radar in a big way. He and Barbara are separated. He gets into a big fight with her. She kicks him out, and he comes back later and pours sulfuric acid all over her couch. What a piece of work this guy is. I wonder if she's lucky he didn't pour it all over her. That not being enough, he burns down her house a couple of days later, luckily when she's out of town. This time, there is plenty of evidence to arrest Wade. He is convicted of arson and sentenced to up to 23 years in jail. He goes off to the state prison in Lansing, Kansas. We've talked about this place before. It's in Lansing, Kansas, which neighbors Leavenworth. So the Kansas State Prison in Lansing is one of the facilities that gives Leavenworth its nickname Prison City. It's where the Clutter family murderers are hanged. Wade isn't at Lansing too long. For the most part, in Kansas, the Department of Corrections tries whenever they can to keep inmates as near their families as possible. Lansing is a long way from western Kansas, so Wade spends most of his sentence farther west in Hutchinson and Wichita, Kansas. Uh, actually in El Dorado, near Wichita. Reporter Peter Gilman calls him at Hutchinson in 1992 when he's researching the case for the London Times for his article, Hoax, The Secrets Truman Capote Took to His Grave. Quote, I guess I was the prime suspect, Wade told me. The FBI gave me a lie detector test and I passed it, but it seems like it was still coming round to me. I'm just sloughing it off. It's just one of those things. I'm not taking it hard or losing my sleep. I've got my own life to live. Oh, listeners, of course he isn't losing any sleep over what he's done. Sounds like he's completely self-absorbed and lacking a conscience. Obligatory, not a psychologist, but narcissistic psychopath with antisocial personality disorder, maybe? I asked when he was expected to be released. He replied, maybe another six months, explaining quickly that he was not in prison over the Anton killings. I'm not spending time on this case. They keep trying to connect the two. I don't know why the hell they should, unquote. Well, listeners, it's pretty clear why somebody might connect the two. Doesn't that almost sound like he's admitting 
the sabotage and rattlesnake incidents, just not the murder. At some point, it's not clear from the sources, the FBI does polygraph Wade about the Anton murders, and apparently, at least, the lie detector test shows no deception. I don't know how much stock law enforcement put into that, but I will say even today, you hear investigators say that they cleared somebody based on polygraph results. Listeners, I must digress for a moment and give you my opinion about so-called lie detector tests. Not that I want people to be better murderers, but if you're involved in a murder case and the police ask you to take a polygraph, don't do it. Innocent or murderer, the only smart thing to say is get me a lawyer. Lawyer up and shut up, right? I know they still ask people to do it. It'll really help us out. If you pass, we can clear you. If you don't have anything to hide, yeah. Then if you refuse, they tell the media, so-and-so refused to take a polygraph, and everybody's suspicious of you. Not so much to me. I think not taking a polygraph is a very wise move, guilty or innocent. I don't put any stock in that. As far as any kind of reliability goes for polygraphs, here's the U.S. Congress Office of Technology Assessment. I put the link to the whole article in the show notes if you are interested. Quote, there is at present only limited scientific evidence for establishing the validity of polygraph testing, even where the evidence seems to indicate that polygraph testing detects deceptive subjects better than chance. Significant error rates are possible, and examiner and examinee differences and the use of countermeasures may further affect validity, unquote. In other words, you may as well use a Ouija board or tarot cards. I can see that they may be useful to law enforcement as an interview tool to put pressure on people to at least talk to them. But they're already not admissible in court for a good reason, and I don't think they should ever be used to clear a suspect. Even if they pass, you should keep them in the back of your mind as possibly still guilty. Okay, so you get the idea. I would never have cleared Chester Hilton Wade of the Anton murders based on a polygraph test. As, but as David Anton, Richard's, Richard and son said, when he was around, oh, quote, when he was around, this county looked like a war zone. We'd have fields burned out, abandoned houses burned down. Nobody could ever pin it on Wade, 
But now that they've arrested him, there haven't been any more of these fires. Oh, sorry, listeners. I think I forgot the end quote. Okay, there you have the sad case of the murders of Richard and Ann Anton on their lonely farm in western Kansas on a hot June night over 40 years ago. No one has ever been called to account for their murders. And the only reason I ran across the case is that I was doing some research about the much more famous Clutter family murders and Truman Capote. Now, as for saying that what you're writing is all true, when really you're just making everything up, Truman Capote is certainly not the first person to do that. I'm not willing to let him off on grounds of dramatic license, though. Making a mistake, getting something wrong, that's perfectly understandable. But if you write something and say every word is true, you need to do your best to make sure that's the case. True crime writers, hey, podcasters too, should have the same standards good journalists follow. Try as hard as you can to get the facts and clearly state when you're just guessing. When you make mistakes... Try to correct them. Otherwise, you're just making stuff up. Not that making stuff up is bad. It's just called fiction, not true crime. All that said, I'm kind of glad Capote brought some attention to the case. Personally, I don't think it will ever be solved unless some new information turns up or somebody confesses. Or it's possible there's evidence we don't know about. It would have to be something that didn't burn up, maybe a bullet or something like that. So there might be hope. You never know. But this isn't a case that is out there in the public consciousness. If you look at cold case websites, cold case, law enforcement websites about cold cases. There's there's really not much about it. So we only know a few things for sure about the murders. Richard is shot twice in the chest and Anne once in the chest. The crime scene is badly burned, so much so that the bodies have to be identified by dental charts The victims are most likely dead before the fire starts. The sheriff says they are both found on their backs and not much else except they're not in their beds. Now, in the New York Daily News story, it's reported that, quote, Richard is found at the foot of the stairs leading into the basement. Anne is found sitting on the couch watching TV, unquote. Listeners, I'm not sure about that watching TV part. How could they know Anna's watching TV if 
everything's burned up at the scene. Plus, the sheriff said she was found on her back. I don't know. I guess it's possible she's watching TV lying down or even she's fallen asleep. I don't know. It's hard to say. For me, a crucial question is where they're shot, which the county attorney says we don't know. The simplest possibility is they're shot right where they're found. Probably Richard first, since he's the most likely to be a threat, then Anne. And the most likely place might be what it says, the New York Daily News, at the foot of the stairs and on the couch, which maybe isn't right at the bottom of the stairs. Who knows? Um, but I think it's possible they're shot outside the basement, or at least one of them is outside the basement. It's almost July. So it's nice outside and light out until pretty late in the evening. One or both of them could be outside for whatever reason. The killer or killers. Sorry, that's a little annoying. For simplicity, I'll keep saying killer. But there could be more than one killer. So the killer shoots Richard outside. Anne could be shot outside too. But even if she's in the basement it's not unlikely she, she could be shot too before she had time to react to what's going on and still be on the couch. The killers drag the body or bodies into the basement before they set the fire. Now, when the Antons are shot isn't really clear either from the news accounts. There's no mention of their movements during the day and evening on that Saturday. It would be really nice to know when somebody last talked to them. But that information isn't out there. I'm guessing that it was an uneventful day. The harvest has just finished up a few days before, so Richard and Anne are probably puttering around the farm getting caught up with chores, maybe even doing a little something on the renovation. Then they have supper at home, or maybe they go out. We don't know. Then they start to wind down, sit down to read or watch TV, maybe, and settle in for the night. The fire is called in about midnight. You wouldn't think the killer would hang around long after the murders before he sets the fire, but it's possible the shootings could have been earlier in the day or the evening with the killer deciding to set the fire later on. I think, though, it's most likely the shootings are around 10 or 11 p.m. with the fire set pretty soon after that. Something else it would be nice to know is how secure the basement is. I would think with everything that's been going on, you know, fires, sabotage, rattlesnakes, 
the basement would be locked up tight. But who knows? My in-laws and my grandparents lived on farms, and they never locked their doors. Plus, country people usually have a shotgun by the door and the dogs out there. If he's close to the house, he'll bark, but it's also possible he's out in the fields somewhere a ways away. If the door isn't very secure, a likely scenario might be Anne sitting on the couch, Richard's getting ready for bed, the killer opens or kicks in the basement door, Richard's shot before he can get to his gun, and then Anne. It's also possible the killer knocked. Now, in that case, I think the Antons would say, who's there? If it's somebody they know, they just open the door. If it's not, especially if they're wary about who it is, like if it's Chester Hilton Wade, I think Richard would grab the shotgun before he opened the door. But even if it is somebody like Wade, Richard might be mad enough to open the door and get shot before he could react to what's going on. Another possibility I wondered about is whether the fire might have started before the shootings. Say somebody sets a fire near the basement. If Richard and Anne are awake... They'll smell the fire and more than likely get out of the basement or at least try to as fast as possible. I suppose Richard might grab his gun, but more likely the couple would be pretty scared of being caught in a basement with a fire going on and they'd burst out of the basement. It would be easy for somebody to pick them off as they do that. Or is this a case of burglary gone wrong? It's possible. Sheriff Kramer said that's what he thought. Gray County is a remote area, but there are good highways that run through Kansas, all kinds of people running up and down the highways. A couple of drifters, or a single drifter, could have gotten off the road to look for a vulnerable farmhouse and spotted the Anton place. Or some locals, who would know Richard is a wealthy man, might target the place. I couldn't find any pictures of the house as it's being remodeled, but it's described as a major renovation. If you didn't know the couple is living in the basement, the house might look empty. Possibly the bad guy starts poking around, the dog starts barking, and Richard, maybe even Anne, comes out of the basement to investigate and get shot. Or Richard gets shot, Anne screams, the burglar kills her too, takes the bodies to the basement, and sets the house on fire to burn up evidence. The nearest neighbor to the Anton farm is over a mile away, so it's not likely anyone would hear anything or think anything of it if they did. This is the country in western Kansas. Guns are everywhere. People shoot off guns all the time. Even at night, 
people are out shooting varmints. The killer panics and flees. It is said in several accounts that valuable items like jewelry and a gun collection are found still on the property. But it's possible that the burglar panics and ends up not stealing anything, at least as far as law enforcement can tell. Senseless murders like this, unfortunately, are not uncommon. Okay, so as far as what I think happened, I'm not completely sure. There are just too many unknowns. So let's speculate some more. Suppose they're shot in the basement. If that's the case, then I think they know and trust the killer. The killer is somebody known to them, and they just let him in. He shoots them, sets the fire, and leaves. That's not unlikely at all. Now, who is this murderer most likely to be? Well, sad to say, a friend or somebody in the family. We all know the very first suspects in a murder are always family members. I have no idea what the Antons' will had in it, or if they even have one. It's never mentioned. Richard's lawyer is quoted in one of the news stories, so they surely have a will. The family's reputedly well off, so a financial motive to get rid of the parents is there. And there could be family issues. I wouldn't be surprised if there were rumors that one or more of the Anton children are involved. My true crime mind always goes ugly places like that. It's also interesting that the youngest son isn't at home that night. Lucky for him? Or was that on purpose? Or it could be somebody they trust, but who's got a motive to kill them? A secret affair or something else? Or even there's a bitter argument that night in the basement that turns to murder. Really all kinds of possibilities. But I have to say there's absolutely no evidence the family is involved. One article says they all have airtight alibis. Maybe it's a Saturday night. People might be out and there are plenty of witnesses to their whereabouts. But if I had to guess, I bet most people's alibis on that Saturday night are their home in bed. And I admit, I'm pretty skeptical of alibis. For example, Hilton Wade's alibi is he's home asleep, backed up only by his wife. And as we all know, even if a suspect has an alibi, it doesn't mean the murderer wasn't hired by them. In fact, sometimes when that's the case, the person hiring the murderer has a great alibi and makes sure that they do. So yeah, there are lots of possibilities in 
that direction of family and friends. But honestly, reading about the family and what people say about them, I don't think they're involved in any way. And I really wish the case could have been solved or at least law enforcement would definitively and very publicly clear them all. And I couldn't find anything like that out there. Otherwise, I think there might always be this little cloud of suspicion around the family or some of their friends or business associates. As far as clouds of suspicion, I do think there should be one around Chester Hilton Wade. I absolutely think he is responsible for all the attacks at the farm. To me, when he burned down his ex-wife's house, he proved that. Now, is it possible he's not the murderer, but somebody's patsy? say, somebody with a motive to kill the Entons gets the bright idea to commit the murders and set the house on fire precisely because they know suspicion will fall on Wade. That's pretty diabolical, and it's certainly possible. But if I'm asked to give my honest opinion, and that's all it is, please don't sue me. It's an opinion. Here it is. Wade nursed his grudge for months and ultimately decided to get his absolutely murderous revenge. I think if he just planned to set fire to the house and not necessarily kill the Antons, he would have set the fire later at night when he was sure they were asleep. I believe he set the fire knowing they were probably still awake. Maybe could hear the TV going. He sat and waited with a big revolver or a rifle or a shotgun. All we know about the gun is it was of, quote, a high caliber, unquote. And he waited to shoot them if and when they emerged from the basement. Having Richard know who killed him would be the ultimate revenge. Then he pulled the bodies back in the basement and amped up the fire inside to make sure everything burned up. That's pretty chilling, but I do think Wade's known behavior, and he was convicted of arson, makes this scenario entirely possible. Still, that's just my opinion. Wade could be innocent in all of this, or he did the rattlesnake stuff, but not the murders. Listeners, if only we knew everything law enforcement knows, it may be that they are pretty sure they know who did it, Wade or even somebody else, and they just can't prove it in court. It's hard to tell. In investigations, it always seems like they hold back things to protect the integrity of the investigation. But 
I just really can't tell if they're doing that in this case. They clearly pursued all kinds of leads, and Wade is a big one, but he's never been charged with anything about these murders or even about all the incidents before the murders. If anybody else is a suspect, there's never been any hint of that. And it's been over 45 years. The KBI still has this as an open case if by chance you think you might know anything. There's a tip form on their webpage, kbi.ks.gov, and there's a tip line, 1-800-KS-CRIME. Chester Hilton Wade serves quite a few years in Kansas prisons for his arson crime of burning his ex-wife's house down. He's released in 1994, and as far as I can tell, he's never been committed of any other crimes. I can't find much on him after he's released, and no death record. He would be 84 years old today. Sheriff Kramer dies in 1986. He is buried in Cimarron, Kansas. His son, Bill, takes over after he dies as sheriff of Gray County. KBI agent Alvin Dewey retires in 1975 without ever writing any books about his cases. He dies in 1987 and is buried out west in Garden City, Kansas. All those graves are on Find a Grave, so if you'd like to leave anybody virtual flowers, you can do that. Two of the Anton boys took over the family farm. As far as I can tell, they and their sister still live in the area. They used the remaining, they used, um, the remaining outbuildings near the fire, but they don't rebuild the farmhouse. Richard and Clara Ann are buried side by side at Cave Cemetery in Gray County, Kansas. The inscription reads, Together Forever. The dog Bigfoot stays on the farm. The family takes care of him. Neighbors report seeing him often lying near the rubble of the burned-out farmhouse where Richard and Ann lost their lives. I put the links to my sources I mentioned for this episode in the show notes, along with some of the other sites I routinely use when I'm researching the podcast. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. It just makes my my month, really, when somebody does that. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. If you don't like putting your thoughts out there on the internet, I understand. So you can also email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.